Well, it's good to be back with you again this morning to resume our, our series in the book of Revelation. And we're going to just jump straight into, into the text that we have before us today. We've got a lot of ground that we have to cover this morning, and it's not easy ground to cover. Um, chapter 7, as I hope to show you in a moment, is, is an interlude in, in John's vision uh, between the opening of the sixth seal uh, and the seventh seal of God's scroll of eternal decrees. Uh, we've spent the last two times together a couple of weeks ago considering the first of the six seals uh, in chapter 6. Uh, and then in chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, uh, we're going to see that that deals with the opening of the seventh seal. But sandwiched in between uh, the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we have chapter 7, which speaks about the sealing of the 144,000. And before we, we look at chapter 7, which is where we're going to spend most of our time uh, today, I want to just remind you of the, the bigger picture by taking you back to the diagram that I gave you at the beginning of the series. So if you've got that in your Bibles, now would be a good time to take that out. Uh, if you don't have one, there are some on the little music stand at the back, and you can just quickly jump up and fetch one there if you want one. Uh, and I'm going to bring it up on the, the screen. Thank you. Um, but you won't be able to read everything there. You need to be able to just see it uh, before you. And I think it's in important to just remind you where we are uh, in this picture. You will recall from our first study from the introduction that I explained to you that the book of Revelation uh, is a book of seven parallel uh, visions or, or par yeah, seven parallel visions that all describe the events of history between the, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, so there's our timeline, and the second coming. And each vision deals with that period between the first and the second coming uh, in, in parallel. The first of these visions, number one there, uh, that row was chapters one to three. And we saw that was the seven letters to the seven churches, and the heading there is Christ in the midst of the lampstands. And we saw seven letters that were written to seven literal historical congregations uh, towards the end of the first century A.D. But we also saw, as we looked at that series last year, uh, that each of those letters has universal application uh, to all the churches of Jesus Christ, including Honey Ridge Baptist Church, throughout the period between the first and the second coming. And we saw that uh, to each of the churches throughout history was given that um, final statement at the end, to those who conquer was a promise of eternal reward in the new heavens and the new earth. Then we started back at the beginning again, back at the first coming with vision number two. Uh, and we went right back in time to that moment in history when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended from earth after his death and resurrection and he entered into glory. He entered into the throne room of heaven as the victorious Lion of Judah. But when John looked to behold the Lion, what did he see? He saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And yet it was standing in the midst of heaven. And we saw as we worked our way through chapter 5 that, that only the Lamb was worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God who sat on the throne and to open and thereby to execute the, the seals of God's eternal decrees. 
And they were decrees which we see affect the whole church age, again, between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so that was that little um, box over there. And then we got into chapter 6, and we started to see the seals being opened. And firstly, we saw Jesus on his white horse, crowned and riding out, conquering and to conquer And then we saw in the opening of the second and the third and the fourth seals, various riders on different horses. There was a a fiery red horse, there was a black horse, and there was a pale horse. And they came out after Jesus on his white horse, and they came to persecute and to trouble the people of God who live on the earth throughout the history of the church. And then with the opening of the fifth seal, we were taken up into heaven And we saw that the persecution of many of the saints here on earth actually led to them being martyred. Many thousands over the history of the church have been put to death and are still today being put to death for their faith in Christ. And we found the souls of those who had been slain, who had been martyred, where were they? They were in the presence of God. They were under the altar We were told that they were given white robes to wear and they were crying out to God to enact justice uh, on the enemies of God who are persecuting the church on earth. And then we ended last time, the end of chapter 6, with the sixth seal, which brought us to the end of the world, uh, with the day of the Lord's judgment when all the cosmos is destroyed and and every living being comes under the judgment of God and under the wrath of the Lamb. And so that brought us then to that yellow box at the end of the second cycle of visions. The wicked uh, are judged. And you will see there that seals number six and number seven are together in that yellow box describing the final judgment of the wicked. But last time we only looked at the first half. And so we're going to continue today, this morning, to consider the second part of that. And we're going to really just start with the final judgment of the wicked. So kind of picking up where we got to at the end of chapter 6, but we're going to focus today on chapter 8, verse 1 to 5 first, and then we'll come back and look at chapter 7. So it is clear that this um, sixth seal that we looked at last time, it brings a total and a final end to the universe on the day of the Lord's judgment. Not one single person outside of Christ, as we saw last time, will escape judgment on that day. Every person from every class of people will come under the terrible judgment of God on that day. Now come with me to chapter 8, and let's read verses 1 to 5 together again. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, that's a a golden bowl, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." 
So the, the opening of this seventh seal, the final seal on the scroll that was in the right hand of God on the throne, causes a period of complete silence in heaven. It's a short, relatively short time, half an hour, but there was this significant pause. Now this idea of utter silence before God is, is not new. It's, it's clearly associated from the Old Testament with silence before God's judgment. We see this clearly in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 and Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7. We won't look at those this morning. But now you may be wondering, hasn't the end of the world already come with the opening of the sixth seal? And yes, it has. And it's been powerfully described from the perspective of people on the earth. People who we saw flee into caves and, and holes in the ground as the terror of the Lord's wrath causes the universe to, to disintegrate around them. Now in chapter 8, we see the same event being described, but this time from heaven's perspective. Remember back when the fifth seal was opened, that was chapter 6 verse 9, we saw these martyred saints under the altar, and they were crying out to God to avenge their blood on those who, who dwell on the earth. And we were told that they were, were told to rest a little bit longer because God had purposed in his sovereignty that still others were to be martyred for their faith. But when the number was full, the number that God had determined, then God would act. Well, chapter 8 is God acting. Acting in response to the prayers of the saints. Here in chapter 8 verse 3, we see an angel with a golden bowl filled with the prayers of all the saints. Not just those who had been slain and whose souls were under the altar, but we are told all the saints, all the saints who prayed to God during their sufferings, during their persecutions on earth. The saints of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, their prayers are in that bowl. The saints of God throughout history, our prayers are in that bowl. And as this bowl of the incense of the prayers of the saints is then poured out over the, the altar, we are told the sweet-smelling smoke rises before the presence of God. What a wonderful picture this is of the, the power and the privilege of prayer. To know that our prayers are not ignored. To know that our prayers are presented in the very throne room of heaven and they rise as a sweet-smelling aroma in the presence of God, stirring God to action. Can I encourage you to come to our prayer meeting this afternoon from five to six as we put this into practice but there is so much more to this picture of the incense of the prayers of the saints because look at what happens next. The same angel who's now emptied the bowl of the prayers of the saints onto the altar now takes that same bowl which had the prayers of the saints in prayers calling on God to act in judgment against the wicked and he now fills that bowl with fire, with hot coals from the altar and in answer to the prayers of the saints, in answer to, to God's final decree of judgment of the wicked, this angel then throws this bowl of fire onto the earth. 
And notice that verse 5 uses very similar language to what we saw previously with the sixth seal. There's thunder, there's flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So what was described previously in chapter 6 from the perspective of people on earth is now being described in the seventh seal from the perspective of heaven. Namely, the, the final judgment and destruction of the wicked as God brings this world to an end. I just love the way the, the images of the sixth and the seventh seal come together here. We, we read back in chapter 6 verse 12, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And here we are told in chapter 8 verse 5 that this angel in heaven takes this bowl of fiery coals and throws it down onto the earth. What are stars if not fireballs in the sky being thrown down from heaven in God's judgment of the wicked? And so there you have the, the yellow block at the end of vision number two explained, the final judgment of the wicked at the end of this age. When Jesus Christ comes again, it's been described in a most clear and graphic way from both the human perspective on earth as well as from the heavenly perspective where God sits in his throne. And so now with those two bookends, um, we are ready to rightly understand chapter 7, which I hope you can see then is an interlude. It's an interlude between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 8, which both describe the same event. And so chapter 7 does not follow on chronologically from chapter 6, but reveals to us a parallel spiritual truth about the people of God during this entire age between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so in the second place today, I want us to see in chapter 7, the church universal, the 144,000, is sealed. And that's verses 1 to 8. Now, verse 1 starts with after this. And so we need to firstly understand what this is referring to. It could be referring to chronology, to historical time, which is the way that many people propose that we should understand this. They would argue that what happens in chapter 7 follows on chronologically after chapter 6. But even if I hadn't gone and spent time in chapter 8 as I've done this morning to show that the seventh seal is also describing the same event from heaven's perspective, I think you have a, a massive problem if you want to describe chapter 7 as following on after chapter 6. Why? Because chapter 6 ended with the whole universe being destroyed in its entirety. There is no more heaven or earth or people left after the end of chapter 6. Please note, chapter 6 describes the great day of God's wrath as having come. It's describing an event in its entirety, in its completion. And chapter 8 confirms this to be so when we are taken into heaven and we are shown that indeed this is the end. When that angel throws the bowl of fire onto the earth, stars fall from the sky, the mountains and the islands disappear, the sky vanishes like a scroll being rolled up. The end has come. And then John says, after this, 
After the, the vision in chapter 6, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, from the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea. And he said to them, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so I hope it's clear that after this in verse 1 is what refers, what, what John sees next. What is his next vision? After the vision of chapter 6, after the final destruction of the universe, John sees what we read in chapter 7. And that takes us back in time to before the world was destroyed, before the destruction of the world in the 6th and the 7th seal. We see that John sees four angels holding back the four winds of the earth. Now this is a clear reference from the Old Testament. The four winds of the earth is a, another reference to the punishment of God on the wicked. If you're taking notes, Ezekiel 5, verse 10 to 12, Jeremiah 49, verse 36, Daniel 7, verse 2, and Psalm 104, verse 4. The reference to the four winds is a, is a symbol of, of judgment and, and punishment that will affect the whole earth. Four winds, north, east, south, west, the whole earth is going to come under the punishment of God. Again, remember the scene. Uh, John didn't have three weeks between the last time that people read chapter 6 and chapter 7, so we need to remember that this just flows. The scene ringing in our minds at the end of chapter 6 is of the final judgment. And the question that we were left hanging with at the end of chapter 6 is, when this great day of God's wrath comes, who can stand? Who can stand? And chapter 7 gives us the answer. When God's judgment goes out across the four corners of the earth, as his four winds of punishment blow over the face of the earth, whether that is a reference to God's partial judgment of the wicked throughout history, or whether this is specifically referring only to God's final judgment of the wicked at the day of the Lord, it doesn't really matter. What we see is only those who are sealed will stand. The servants of God who have been sealed on their foreheads, they will stand. And so John sees another angel who, who rises up in the east, and he has the seal of the living God. We'll talk about the seal in a minute. But what we see is that he restrains these four angels from carrying out their mission of harm and judgment and destruction on the earth. Why? Until, he says, the servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. And so we are told then that 144,000 are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. We're going to get to the 144,000 uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But I firstly want us to just consider the identity of this angel who rises in the east and restrains the, the four angels and, and the four winds of God's judgment. Who is the one who commands these four angels and they obey? 
Who is the one who has the seal of God? And who is he who goes out then to seal the servants of God? We cannot be dogmatic here, but it certainly aligns with my previous explanation that the rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ, that we understand this angel who restrains the the wrath and the punishment of God from destroying the earth, that this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Remember, while the other three horsemen from chapter 6 pursue the righteous in order to trouble them and to persecute them, the rider on the white horse rides out conquering and to conquer. And we saw last time that was primarily through the preaching of the gospel. Isn't it fitting then to see that this mighty restraining angel who rises from the east is the angel of the Lord who holds back the day of judgment? I love it. The the day of judgment has not yet come upon this world because Christ is holding back the judgment of God until all of those who are his have been sealed so that not one will be lost of whom the Father has given to the Son. Pastor and theologian Joel Beakey says, the angel who gives this command can be no one but the Lord Jesus Christ. An angel can be a supernatural being who serves God as a flame of fire, but throughout Scripture there are specific angel references to specific angels. The angel of the covenant in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the angel of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3, as well as this angel with a loud voice in Revelation 7, it must be understood to be Christ. Who else has all authority in heaven and on earth? Who else could cry out with a loud voice, hurt not the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads? Well, let's move on and consider then what the sealing refers to. And in the historical and biblical context, the idea of a seal, we looked at that a little bit um, when we looked at the sealing of the scroll, it refers to a number of things. It refers to ownership, it refers to authenticity, uh, a seal also referred to authority. But I think above all, in in this context of chapter 7, the seal most clearly refers to protection. This is the seal of the king's protection that would go out with a group and no one would dare touch them if they had the mark of the king upon them. It's that idea of the seal that those who are sealed here are spared the wrath and the judgment of these four winds. In other other words, coming back to the question, who will stand in the judgment? The answer is clear, only those who are sealed. Now, although John doesn't specifically mention this, again, remember that all of Revelation is is steeped in, in Old Testament and New Testament theology. And so the rest of the New Testament is clear that this seal most naturally, most obviously refers to the Holy Spirit which is another reason why it it fits to understand the angel that's doing the sealing as Jesus Christ. He holds the seal of God, and he does the sealing. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Wonderful portion. Paul says in Ephesians 1, In him, that's in Christ, you, speaking to the church, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Christ, what happened? You were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit. So let's just think about this for a moment. As, as Jesus Christ rides out on his white horse across the pages of church history to conquer the world with the gospel of salvation, as each person believes in him, Paul says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so Paul goes on later in Ephesians 4 verse 30, and he warns us as Christians, brothers and sisters, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So here we see how wonderfully God's word interprets God's word and how as believers we are to understand this sealing in Revelation 7 as being consistent with God's work of preserving those who are his until the very end. What a wonderful blessing it is to be those who are sealed. William Hendrickson in his commentary writes, this sealing is the most precious thing under heaven. Is that the way you view the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, this then brings us to the question of the identity of those who are sealed. Who are the 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel? Now, many fanciful ideas have been put forward over the history of the church, and I'm not going to go into them except for one. If you ever want one good reason why not to become a Jehovah's Witness, it's that they teach that, the, that only the 144,000 will go to heaven, but that number was reached back in 1935, so sorry for you. There's a lot more wrong with Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, but um, there's one, one starting point. But really, more seriously, though, there are two main possibilities um, to the identity of the 144,000. There is the futurist approach to the book of Revelation. I talked about that back in our first introduction. The futurist approach to Revelation sees that the whole of chapters 4 to 22 are describing e events entirely in the distant future, just prior to the return of Christ. Specifically focused on the period of a so-called seven-year tribulation. And we'll get more into that as we work our way through Revelation. And they would argue for an entirely literal understanding of this group of people. Literally 144,000, now hear me here, ethnic Jewish celibate men. Okay? This view holds that the church would have been raptured by that point in time. The church would be gone in heaven already, and only Jews would have been left on the earth with unbelieving Gentiles, and, and this is a group of ethnic Israelite men who come to believe in Jesus during the Great Tribulation. Now, why only men? Well, because if you read Revelation literally, you have to be consistent. And so in chapter 14, which describes this exact same group of 144,000, we are told specifically that these are men who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. So I would argue that a simple reading of Revelation 
does not, cannot support a literalistic, futurist understanding. But as I've been explaining, this is referring to Christ's activity by the Holy Spirit to seal the entire church of Jesus Christ on earth. Let's look at that a little bit more. Let's start with the number. Um, You see, the other main view is that the 144,000 isn't a specific literal number, but is understood to be a figurative or symbolical number that refers to the whole church of Jesus Christ, the church universal. Now, why do I say this? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, the symbolism of numbers is, is clear. And so this would certainly apply then to the 144,000 as referring symbolically, numerically to the complete number of God's people. How do we get there? Well, 144,000, even if you're not great at maths, is the multiplication of 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's quite simple. The 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of Christ in the New Testament, and 1,000 being the number of completeness in Scripture. The complete church made up of all believing Jews and Gentiles. And we see this exact same idea being confirmed in chapter 21. Uh, You can turn there, we won't read it, but if you look at chapter 21, John sees the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And he describes what is clearly a symbolical picture of the whole church. It's called the bride, it's called the wife of the lamb. And we are told that this city, the new Jerusalem, had 12 gates. And the names of the 12 gates were according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the city had 12 foundations. And each of the foundations was named according to the 12 apostles of Christ. And then we are told that each side of this perfectly cubic city was 12,000 stadia, 12 times 1,000. And the walls were 144 cubits thick. So in Revelation 21, we are clearly being given a a picture, a symbol of the church, and it's being described numerically by 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so it's entirely consistent then to understand John's description here in chapter 7 with the same numerical symbolism of 12 times 12 times 1,000, which he has used to describe the New Jerusalem. So that deals hopefully with the number, 144,000, as a number referring symbolically to the universal church of Jesus Christ. So what do we do then with the reference to the 144,000 coming from the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel in verse 4? Is that meant to be understood literally to refer only then to ethnic Jews? And if so, male, celibate, ethnic Jews. Well, there are a number of problems with this. Verse 4 says that the 144,000 are from every tribe. But at least one tribe is missing, namely Dan, and possibly two tribes are missing if we also include Ephraim. And so there must be some degree of symbolic understanding if the word every doesn't mean every. That's the first problem. Secondly, In the Old Testament, there are two main ways to identify the 12 tribes of Israel. Either as the 12 sons of Jacob, which then includes Joseph, 
but not Manasseh and Ephraim, who were Joseph's sons, or to describe the 12 tribes as those who inherited land, which then excluded Levi and Joseph, but included Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But what we have here in Revelation follows neither of those two Old Testament descriptions. And so it becomes very difficult to understand this list in a purely literalistic way. And then thirdly, in the main lists in the Old Testament, I'm referring to Genesis 48, uh, Exodus chapter 1, and 1 Chronicles chapter 2, the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, were always listed in order of age, starting with Reuben as the firstborn. But here in John's list, who is firstborn? Judah. That should ring a bell. There was a lion from the tribe of Judah back in chapter 5. So, so clearly a, a simple literalistic reading of this group as ethnic descendants of the tribes of Jacob has plenty of problems, and there are many more. I didn't want to go into all of those this morning. For those of you who do want to grapple with that, uh, please just pop me a mail. I'm happy to send you more questions uh, that you need to ask yourself if you hold to this list referring to Israel. But if this group refers to the church made up of all believing Jews and Gentiles, then we can clearly understand why Judah is at the top of the list. It's from the the tribe of Judah that Jesus the Messiah came. He is the head of the people of God. He takes the place of prominence. Notice he replaces Reuben as the firstborn of the people on the list. More important and more clear for me is the fact that the whole Bible has been setting the scene for this description. That the true Israel of God is nothing other than the church of Jesus Christ. And this has already been abundantly clear in the book of Revelation itself. Let me just give you some examples to show you that Israel in the Old Testament is now being spoken of as the church in the new, and particularly in Revelation. Back in Exodus 19, verse 6, we see a description of Israel, national Israel, as a kingdom of priests. No other nation on the earth was called a kingdom of priests to God. When we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 5, verse 10, John describes the church as a kingdom and priests to God. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, and chapter 65, verse 15, Israel is described as receiving a new name from God. But then Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 12, describes the church as the one who receives a new name from God. In Isaiah 43 and 49 and 60, we read that God says unbelieving Gentiles will come and they will bow down before Israel. But in Revelation chapter 3 verse 9, Jesus reverses this and he says that unbelieving Jews will come and bow down before the church. And this pattern that we see in Revelation is entirely consistent with the New Testament, where the church of Jesus Christ is described as the true Israel of God. Let me give you a couple of references. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 29. 
Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. All happy there. Then he says, because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. How much more clear could Paul be that the church is the true spiritual Israel of God, even calling us Abraham's offspring? Philippians 3 verse 3, Paul again takes Jewish language of the circumcision. That was the sign that God gave to Jews to separate them from every other people on the earth. Paul says in Philippians 3 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then James chapter 1 verse 1, written to Gentile Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire, what does he say? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. There are many other passages, by the way. I've got a whole list here in my notes. I'm happy to send them on to you of how the New Testament again and again affirms that the church is the true Israel of God. And so just two more points then regarding this 144,000. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. They are called the servants of God. The servants of God are sealed. Every other place in the New Testament where the phrase servant of God is used, it either refers to the church or to servants of God in the context of the church. 2 Corinthians 6, Titus 1, James 1, 1 Peter 2. And so as we read this 144,000 then being limited to, to Jewish male virgins at some point in the distant future in history is to go against the whole flow and the understanding of the clear language in the New Testament. Also the word servants there is the word doulos. It's used five or six other times in Revelation, always referring only to the church. And lastly then, if we turn ahead to the fourth vision, chapter 14, um, you will see that the 144,000 there are described as those who have the name of Jesus and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. In other words, the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit is that the name of Christ and, and the name of God the Father are written over us. What do we read in Romans, when the Holy Spirit is within us, He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We are those who are described as being redeemed from the earth in chapter 14. Surely this is a description of every believer. Who else bears the name of Christian, followers of Jesus, children of the living God, born again and sealed by the Holy Spirit? And just lastly on, on this whole topic of, of the sealing here, we need to also understand that in the context of Revelation, there is another group that bear the mark of another seal. It's the mark of the beast. And we're going to look more at that in the future, but let me just read to you from Revelation 14 verse 9. 
Listen to what is said about those who bear that mark. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. You see, ultimately, there are only two groups of people in the Bible. Christians and unbelievers. Those who follow Jesus and those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. Those who bear the seal of Jesus Christ on their lives or those who bear the mark of the beast. Revelation is clear. All those who bear the mark of the beast and his name will be destroyed for all eternity. But all those and only those who are sealed by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will stand on that day and will be protected. So I got myself into a jam again this week. I was supposed to do the whole of chapter 7. We'll come back next week to look at verses 9 to 17. And, and I know today has been a bit more technical than usual, and I apologize for that. But it's passages like this in Revelation which cause so much division and confusion among Christians that many Christians say, I want nothing to do with the book of Revelation. I'd rather just leave it. And in doing that, instead of grappling with these passages, we, we miss out of, on finding what God's purpose is for giving this book to us as his people. And so I realize that there will be some of you yet today who do not agree with my explanation. I had one uh, elderly gentleman say to me during the course of the week, I can't wait to see how you're going to get your way out of the 144,000. Um, I'm just asking you, if you hold to that, just examine if your interpretation really comes from the text and from the flow of the text in all of Scripture, or if perhaps it's been squeezed into a, a pre-existing, mainly Americanized mold of understanding which perhaps ignores the Christ-centered trajectory of Scripture. And this is where it really does matter for me as a pastor, because I must come back today to the purpose and the theme of the book of Revelation which is that this book was written to struggling Christians. I'm so glad that Nick chose the songs today that spoke about our struggle and our battle in this world. This book was written for Christians like us, Christians like those in the Ukraine and Russia, encouraging them to remain faithful to Jesus despite all the suffering, all the persecution, even martyrdom. They need to know that the Lamb wins, that the Lamb is all the glory, and their salvation is secure. So to understand this passage today as being entirely in the distant future, about God's sealing of 144,000 Jewish male virgins, that offers no hope, no encouragement, and very little point to those early Christians to whom this letter was written. Christians loved by Jesus. But the word of God always has a point. It always accomplishes the purpose for which God sends it out. The point of this passage today, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, that's okay. The point of the passage is this. When the day of God's wrath comes, who can stand? 
Have you been numbered in the 144,000 of God's redeemed people? Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit of salvation? Do you have the name of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ written on your forehead? We're going to see next week the, the lamb who was slain is also the great shepherd of the sheep. We are told in John's gospel that he knows who are his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and he leaves the 99 who are safe and he goes out and he pursues the one who has gone astray. Do you perhaps hear his voice calling you today? When the judgment comes, and it's coming, is the blood of the perfect Passover lamb painted over the doorposts of your life? When the four winds of God's judgment are released across Johannesburg, will he find you hiding in the caves of your own sinfulness and rebellion? Or will he find you standing, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? I pray that you will hear his voice today and that we will all run to the Lamb standing for his protection and salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for this insight, not an insight necessarily primarily into the end of the world. Yes, that is certainly part of it, but an insight into the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit right now as you go out to save and to seal those who are your children. Thank you for your work of salvation on the cross. Thank you that you have conquered death. You have defeated Satan. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who you poured out at Pentecost to indwell and seal each and every believer for that day in which we will finally stand before you clothed in your righteousness for all eternity. Lord, may we take great comfort today to see your love for us and your sovereign ruling and reigning over all of history for the glory of Christ and for the benefit of his church. We give you praise. Amen.